In a dystopian future where machines have taken over the world, a group of rebel soldiers and their fearless leader fight to free humanity from their robotic overlords. Equipped with advanced technology and a fierce determination, the soldiers must navigate dangerous missions and treacherous alliances as they struggle to restore freedom to a world ruled by machines. But as battles get more intense and with more on the line, the rebels learn that the true enemy may be something bigger than they ever realized. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dressed, consumed, and connected. And today, we look back on the unique toy, TV show, and brand meant to take advantage of changing technology, but created major controversy along the way. This is a story of Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. We can interact with everything today. Virtual and augmented reality, AI, and old Nintendo Wii. Things are more interactive than at any point in human history. We have smart homes and virtual assistants. We can ask our phones to tell us the weather to avoid straining our necks like a goon to turn and look outside. But this level of interaction wasn't exactly commonplace in the early 1980s. We had Atari and Pong in our homes, but the era of video games with NES and Sega had yet to explode. As we crossed into the second half of the 80s, our living rooms became dens of entertainment more people began to own VCRs, and as Nintendo and Sega became part of our daily lives, we began to interact with our TVs and technology in a way that had never been seen before. Technology in the kids' toy market was quickly advancing. Now, we had things like the robotic operating buddy, or Rob, for Nintendo, that played our video games with us. We had the light gun zapper and duck hunt for the NES that made our TVs something we could physically interact with. Going into the second half of the 80s, interactive toys were the industry buzzword. And a lot of companies wanted to get in on the interactive action. There is, of course, one of the kings of interactive toys, Teddy Ruxpin, but here are a few more deep cuts. You may remember Tech Force, Created by a company founded by Nolan Bushnell, who also created Atari, Tech Force were toy robots that sat in front of the TV and moved and imitated the cartoons on screen. Toy company Galoob also planned for a video box option for their baby talk doll. When hooked up to a VCR, the doll would look like it was talking and interacting with the characters on the video. And then there was one unique character that capitalized on this new era of technology and interaction, Captain Power. Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future was a 1987 science fiction live-action TV show that featured computer-generated images. During certain segments, specific toys interacted with the show. You fired at sensors on the screen and were hit in return. Think Max Headroom meets Duck Hunt. For a kid in the 80s, this was pretty remarkable. It was a video game come to life, and you played it in real time. If you grew up during this time period, 
you may remember the mammoth hype over this TV show, the commercials, and the toys themselves. You may also remember how incredibly controversial this kid's show was. We'll get to all that coming up in a bit. But let's look back on a show that was pretty ahead of its time and embraced technology in a way that captivated a lot of kids and maybe was a warning about the future. Power on. Captain Power and the soldiers of the future. So first, what is the synopsis of this show? Captain Power set on Earth in the 22nd century during a period of time that followed the Metal Wars. This wasn't Motley Crue versus Skid Row, but the Metal Wars was a revolt from the cyborgs that inhabited the Earth. The cyborgs used artificial intelligence to take over the human race, ruling them with intelligent machines. Captain Power himself is actually Jonathan Power, who leads a small group of guerrilla warriors called the Soldiers of the Future as they battle the machines that are running the Earth. The synopsis of Captain Power is explained at the beginning of each episode, informing us that it is the year 2147. This is the legacy of the Metal Wars, when man fought machine and machines won. The Soldiers of the Future face the Biodreads, which are the monstrous creations that hunt down human survivors and digitize them. Volcania is the center of the Biodread Empire and stronghold and fortress of Lord Dread, the feared ruler of this new order. But from the fires of the Metal Wars arose a new breed of warrior, born and trained to bring down Lord Dread and his Biodread Empire. They are soldiers of the future, and mankind's last hope. Besides Jonathan Power, there is Major Matthew Hawk Masterson who can fly and fight from the sky, Lieutenant Michael Tank Ellis who is the ground assault unit, Sergeant Robert Scout Baker in charge of communications and espionage, and Corporal Jennifer Pilot Chase, the tactical systems expert. They are the most powerful fighting force in Earth's history and their creed is to protect all life, their promise to end Lord Dread's rule. The exposition heavy intro was very important as it allowed new viewers to be able to jump right in and understand what they were watching and playing against. Without a backstory, you would have just been firing at a screen. So that's the essence of the show, but how did we get here? Well, it all starts with legendary toy company, Mattel. For decades, Barbie had been their bread and butter and made up nearly 40% of their total yearly sales. Pretty impressive, but not ideal for a company looking to have a more diverse lineup instead of relying on one mainstay. One toy that took Mattel to a new level was He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. At its peak in 1985, the legendary toy reached sales of $300 million a year, or over $800 million when adjusted for inflation. Unfortunately for Mattel, sales in the next few years dropped to $50 million. And then in 1987, we got the pretty disastrous Masters of the Universe film. He-Man was fading, and Mattel needed something to fill the void. But at the same time, they needed something fresh, original, 
able to capture the advancements in interactive technology and be a standout new franchise. Enter Gary Goddard and Tony Christopher from the Landmark Entertainment Production Company. Both had worked for Disney and Goddard was involved with the He-Man movie. Mattel was quite familiar with Goddard and he pitched them on this new idea for a show to coincide with a toy and action figure that Mattel would release. The timing was perfect. Not only was Mattel looking for a He-Man replacement, but they were also working on some new interactive toy technology that could possibly be incorporated into a TV show. And a live action show would be the perfect way to make use of Mattel's light ray technology. A TV show in conjunction with a toy could create a true active viewing experience. Captain Power would be live action with a blend of pretty revolutionary CGI. Remember, this is 1987 and the word CGI didn't even mean much to many people yet. The writers of the show came from an impressive background of top cartoon shows and live action TV. With Captain Power, however, they had a more mature audience in mind. Kids who were, say, 9 years old when He-Man was first released were now in the 14 to 15 years old range. Hopefully, they were ready for something more advanced and even more science fiction-y. The creators still hoped to corner the kids' market, but there was also hope that this new show might be able to capture an even older demographic that grew up with Star Wars and Star Trek. So how did this show work? How did you use the toys to play it? Certain portions of the show included visual and audio segments that interacted with the specific toys. Certain flashing and blinking parts of the screen could be fired at and you registered a hit. At the same time, the toys also included sensors that could be hit by the flashing images happening on screen. Many of the toys themselves were part weapon, part spaceship. One of the main toys was the Powerjet XT7. It held a Captain Power action figure, and if you took enough hits from the TV show, the figure would be ejected out of the seat. Some of the other toys included the Interlocker, which was like a giant seated laser gun, the Power On Energizer, and the Blast Pack 1200, which was like a rocket jetpack. The interactive segments on the show only lasted as long as three minutes and as short as 30 seconds, so you had to be ready to battle at a moment's notice. Not a bad formula to keep kids tuned in for the entire show. The toys also served a dual purpose. Since most were part laser weapon, part spaceship, you could use them as a regular space toy for the rest of the time when you weren't watching the show. All in all, there were a significant amount of vehicles and characters, and the main theme here is you couldn't get the full experience of the show without them. The various spaceships could run you anywhere from $30 to $40. Converted for today, that's upwards of over $100. Pretty steep, but again, a necessity to fully enjoy the show. We'll explore this significant issue coming up in a bit. But before the show even debuted, the toys were quickly released. Captain Power has come to TV, and you can be part of it. 
What are you doing? Aim the Powerjet XT7, fire invisible beams at the television targets, and score. Or be hit. The TV show fires back. No kidding. Captain Power versus Lord Dread. I don't believe it. Believe it, short human. The power of the future is in your hands. Believe it. Backed by a huge marketing campaign and tremendous word of mouth on my playground at school, Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future toys were a big hit, mainly because they were pretty cool. And it was familiar laser technology. We had all played Duck Hunt and used the Zapper Gun, so interactive laser toys seemed second nature. The TV show Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future was released in September 1987 and syndicated in both Canada and the US. And a lot of the production took place here in Toronto, Canada. The main arc for the first season involved Lord Dredd's plan to eliminate all human life on a post-apocalyptic Earth and to impose his own agenda. This was called Project New Order. Captain Power and his crew are able to use transit gates, which are teleportation portals to move around North America. This way, they are able to keep their primary base a secret. At the end of the first season, Lord Dread is able to break the gate's access codes and they proceed to attack the bases. Captain Power and most of the crew escape, but Jennifer, Pilot Chase, who used to be a BioDread youth, gets stuck there. Activate auto destruct sequence. Authorization code 7995 Omega destruct. Order to destruct acknowledged. You have four minutes to reach minimum safety distance. And she activates the base's self-destruct, blasts it and blasts it, her, and the Biodread troops to kingdom come. If you think that sounds a bit too intense for what is still technically a kid show, you'd be right. And the show got even darker than that. The first season made up of 22 episodes also explored some pretty intense topics, including death and the aftermath of nuclear war there was also some relatively adult language. Ultimately, this was a pretty violent show. And this would soon become a much bigger issue. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Despite the violence and some of the mature themes, Captain Power was a big ratings hit right out of the gate. It was the second highest rated syndicated show. Number one, DuckTales, of course. It was now a duck hunt for first place. That joke's going to cut out. The Captain Power TV show and toys were also released alongside some videotapes. What are you doing? Saving the future. But how? With Captain Power videotapes. There are three different skill levels. This one's the toughest. Now we can practice any time with the Power Jet XT7. Score or be hit. Captain Power videotapes. I don't believe it. Believe it, large human. The power of the future is in your hands. The home video releases of Captain Power were another smart move. 
Instead of waiting all week to blast at Lord Dread, a better option for kids was to pop in a Captain Power tape anytime you felt like it. The TV show only featured a few minutes of battle scenes to play against. The tapes, for about $12 a pop or over $30 converted for today, were primarily made up of battle scenes. Now, with a Captain Power VHS tape, you could basically play the entire episode. For toy companies, the growing home video market in the 80s presented a great new opportunity. A toy franchise could now spread beyond just action figures, dolls, playsets, vehicles, and accessories. They could also offer home videotapes. Even if it wasn't as big as the toy sales, this gave the toy companies yet another revenue stream. And this was a whole new frontier. In the first half of the 80s, very few people owned VCRs. Not only were they incredibly expensive, but so were the VHS and beta movies. If you remember back to the early part of the 80s, a new release movie on VHS could cost upwards of $80. Converted for today, that's closer to $200. Why so expensive? Well, the studios didn't think home video was viable, and they worried that the sale of new release movies would cost them ticket sales for future theatrical re-releases. This is why the movies were priced so high back then. But going into 1986 and 1987, and with the cost of VCRs coming down, studios finally saw how lucrative home video could be. I have a previous episode all about this and how one movie in particular, the Top Gun VHS release, helped change the course of home video. Subsidized by commercials, Top Gun was released at a much lower price point and helped usher in a new age of home movie purchasing. And now video rental stores were taking off. With the growth of home video, companies realized that department store video shelves and video store rental shelves were yet another battleground for our money. Disney had dominated those shelves, but now companies like Mattel were competing alongside them. Right next to Lady and the Tramp and Cinderella were VHS tapes of He-Man, She-Ra, Teddy Ruxpin, Barbie, and now Captain Power. All the new licensed characters of the 80s that we saw on cartoon shows now had their own VHS tapes. Disney had never seen a competition like this before. A New York Times article from October 1987 states how the children's video cassette market was now a booming industry. In 1987 alone, nearly 24 million tapes were sold, creating revenue of what today would be over $700 million. This market would only continue to grow, and Captain Power had got in on the ground floor. From a marketing perspective, Captain Power really was a brilliant creation. It combined all the things that were hot at the time. Saturday morning programming, video games, interactive toys, and the growing home video market. The show, the toys, and the tapes were all one and the same. Each used the other to make up the entire product. It was like five lions coming together to form Voltron. But then the issues started coming up. I mentioned that Captain Power didn't always feel like a kid's show. Besides the intense themes and violence, there was also quite a bit of romance and sexual innuendo. 
Mix that in with the light cursing, and you've got a show that a lot of parents raised an eyebrow to. The creators, however, didn't want to punch down to anyone or make the show too cartoony. But this was a tough situation because depending on what market you were in, Captain Power could be airing alongside many beloved kids shows. You probably weren't seeing a lot of violent death on Strawberry Shortcake. Some death, but not a lot of death. And besides all this, you clearly had a show that required you buying something to watch it properly. The show was promoting the toys and the toy commercials promoting the show were aired during that very show. At this point in the 80s, most of the commercials we saw seemed like cartoons, and the cartoon shows themselves were nothing more than 22-minute commercials. I've covered this deeper in my episodes on G.I. Joe and Transformers, but due to the lifting of children's advertising restrictions, the 1980s became the wild west of marketing to kids. Before regulations were lifted, commercials could only contain a minimal amount of animation so as to not be confused with a cartoon show. According to the Action for Children's Television, or ACT, young kids can't differentiate between the two, and they don't understand how persuaded they're being through commercial messaging. There were also restrictions on seeing kids playing with the toy the commercial was selling. But going into the mid-80s, with regulations lifted, it was pretty much anything goes. I cover this topic a lot, but it really is the cornerstone to understanding a lot of 1980s pop culture as you know it. Groups like the ACT tried to protect kids from being directly marketed to, but in the 80s, they didn't have a ton of power, as the market was to decide what would be successful. But Captain Power was a different animal altogether. It was one thing for Transformers and My Little Pony cartoon shows to look like commercials for toys and playsets. But Captain Power was actively saying that you can't properly experience their show without buying Mattel's toys. Castle Grayskull was one thing, but advocacy groups drew the line on interactive toys like Captain Power. A New York Times article from February 1987 said the worry about interactive toys was that they, quote, structure the children's responses rather than encouraging their imaginations, unquote. That concern was shared by the Academy of Pediatrics Subcommittee on Children and Television. The Action for Children's Television complained, quote, that by marketing the toys through what children perceive as entertainment programming rather than advertising, the shows will be deceiving their audience. The controversy around Captain Power between the violence and excessive commercialism forced Mattel to make some changes. They decided not to air commercials for the toys during the show. The show also brought in a child psychologist, and there were also discussions of possible educational uses for the interactive technology. The debate between content and commercialism, not to mention the issues of violence, continued to swirl around Captain Power. But there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? A second season seemed to be in the cards. But if you grew up with Captain Power, you know this never happened. The truth is, the issue of violence really did affect the perception of the show and gave them the wrong type of attention. And another one of their hopes 
didn't pan out. The older demographic they craved wasn't jumping on board. To a more mature audience, Captain Power, based on the promotions and kids' toy commercials, seemed more like a children's show. In some markets, it even aired very early on Sunday mornings, not exactly the time when college students are up. Early time slots like this further solidified to older viewers that Captain Power seemed more intended for kids. Even though the show was a syndication hit, it didn't exactly translate into staggering toy sales. The hope was that Captain Power toys would be the big hit for Christmas of 1987. And that didn't exactly happen. Because here's the thing. If you remember playing with Captain Power toys, they didn't always feel super precise. You weren't always sure if you were properly engaging with the show and scoring hits. The user experience, or gameplay if you want to call it that, felt like it could have been better. Mattel reported that it would actually lose money in 1987. For a lot of their toy lines, including Captain Power, Mattel needed to limit further shipments so store shelves wouldn't be filled with unsold toys. Mattel was also facing competition for the iconic Barbie line with a new rocker doll on the scene that I have a recent episode all about, Gem and the Holograms. But possibly the biggest issue of all is how incredibly expensive it was to create Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. Producing live action is already expensive, but when you incorporate in the computer-generated imagery and post-production, a single episode of Captain Power cost a million dollars. Converted for today, that's more like 2.6 million. Mattel was subsidizing the cost of producing this very complex show, but the sales of the toy line weren't paying off. Even though the scripts for an entire new season were completed, the second season was scrapped. Talks of a Captain Power reboot in various forms have been in talks for years, but we'll see what comes of it. It always seems cliche when you say something was ahead of its time, but this really was the case with Captain Power. Despite its advanced storytelling and use of technology, it definitely made a significant impact in 1980s pop culture. Yes, there was controversy, but it seemed to come from pushing the boundaries as a first-of-its-kind show. The violence aspect can't be ignored, and even though it existed on network TV, it wasn't really different from us watching stormtroopers getting attacked with blasters and lightsabers. But the show did share lessons about the importance of perseverance, resilience, teamwork, and cooperation. Captain Power also had its warnings about the future. Yes, technology provides us with many advancements, but those advancements can also lead to great dangers. The characters of Captain Power have to learn to navigate the use and misuse of technology. This is something that's as relevant today as it was back in 1987. Every era and generation experiences new technology, and we all have to learn what role it will have in our lives. Ultimately, nothing is going to stop technology. Back in 87, would the creators of Captain Power be astonished that we have robots on Mars and have landed on comets? Could they envision you, wherever you are in the world, listening to my voice on a computer you can carry around in your pocket? Or would all of our advancements 
just be the natural progression of where they saw technology heading. I never owned any Captain Power toys, but my best friend did, so you can imagine where I spent most of my time. Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future did something incredibly unique that we hadn't seen before. Would it have benefited better from a release sometime in the future? Did it need a different audience? Was the technology advanced enough yet to create a true interactive viewing experience? It's hard to tell, but the show still blazed its own trail and made a big impact on a generation of kids. Pretty remarkable considering it only lasted for one season. Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future may have explored some intense themes, but the show featured deep and truly creative writing and storytelling. Ultimately, there really was nothing like it on TV. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you're new here, there's plenty more where that came from. Here are some suggestions for further listening from my previous episodes. I mentioned Max Headroom and have an entire episode all about this unique show and character that shares some similarities with Captain Power. I also talked about VCRs and have an episode all about VHS versus Betamax and the VCR format wars of the 80s. Last but not least, we touched on video games and I have a previous episode all about the history of the NES. But besides those, there are plenty of great topics for you to sink your teeth into. If you really like this episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you're notified when I release a new show. And feel free to tell a friend about Everything 80s so we can all look back at our favorite decade. If you're in a position to support the show, you can consider becoming a part of Patreon.com. That's a platform to get access to bonus audio content like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast. That's where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s films. If you want to learn more, just head over to patreon.com slash 80s. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 80s or click on the link in the description. But thank you so much for being here with me today. I know there are a million podcasts out there. So the fact you've chosen to listen to mine means the world to me. So I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. <laughs>